You're listening to CGM Lounge. Welcome back to another episode of CGM Lounge. This is Linda Fernandez, and I'm joined today by two amazing individuals. They are Jennifer Ingram, who is an entrepreneur, a mother, and also a new member of CGM. Welcome, Jen. And we also have with us Alexandra McFadden, who is a budding entrepreneur. She's actually recently uh, started two LLCs with us over the last couple months. And she is also an amazing singer. And she's also our top listener. So thanks, Alexandra, for joining us today. Today, we're going to talk about supporting Black-owned businesses. And we're going to unpack that a little bit and talk about some layers that exist within that. So first, I'm going to start with some data points that I found this morning when I was doing some Google research. According to Census Bureau data, there are more than 8 million minority-owned businesses in the United States. Of these, 2.5 million are owned by African Americans. African American-owned firms account for about 10% of the approximately 27 million total U.S. businesses. And I will couple that with some more data. There is $850 billion moving through the black consumer's hands each year, with 90% of that going to non-black businesses. So that's a lot of money that's not making its way into the African American community. I also looked up some articles about the top reasons why it's important to support black-owned businesses, and they pretty much all say the same thing. The, the most important reason is that we need to close the, the wealth gap, the racial wealth gap. And, you know, that is traced to the history of the United States. And when we look at Jim Crow era practices, redlining, job discrimination, um, these are all things that prevented homeownership and wealth building within the African American community. So that's just, I think, a really important thing to, to think about when um, thinking about where to spend your money because it, it is political. And there's uh, somebody who I was had the pleasure of hearing them speak recently. Their name is Ashton Berry, and they spoke about the hospitality industry, and they mentioned how the hospitality, the food and beverage industry is run on black and brown labor. However, the amount of ownership is minimal. And so it's extremely important to support Black-owned restaurants and bars, and where we spend our money is political. Uh, the other thing is that it strengthens local economies. So supporting Black-owned businesses in your neighborhood is directly connected to the well-being of the neighborhood. And thirdly, it creates jobs. African-American-owned businesses are more likely than non-African-American-owned businesses to hire African-American employees. So these were just uh, some of the things that I wanted to mention. 
but now um, we're gonna hear from Jen and Alexandra. Jen was talking about how she did 40 days of Black-owned businesses, so can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely, and I, you're right, um, I love that intentionality um, of where you spend your money. Um, but yes, for Lent one year, um, probably a couple of years back, I committed to only spending um, my money, my hard-earned money, and money that was not already you know, deemed necessary to spend, whether it's like, you know, for your house or for your rent or anything like that. But that money was to, um, every, everything else that I could, that, that discretionary funds I had, was to go to an African-American-owned um, business. And I mean, for, um, and actually since then, since that, ex I don't even call it an experiment, and, and there's actually another, um, there's a book too out or, or where a woman basically did her, um, it's called My Black Year, I believe. And Maggie, Maggie, uh, I think Anderson is her name, and where she basically talks about doing the same thing that I did, um, but for a year. And it's incredibly humbling. It's incredibly difficult. Um, I, I can only imagine those doing it um, before me, where that was the only option. And so you basically, you know, you, you work with what you had. Um, us now, we have you know Google and all these other resources where we can identify black-owned companies, where we can say, okay, who is the black ownership? But it does take work. It does take, again, I'm gonna use that word intentionality, where you have to say, no, I'm planning, this is my money, this is the money that I earned, um, this is my hard-earned black money, and this is where and how I plan to spend it. Um, and the more that we do that, the better you know we'll be able to impact our communities we'll be able to impact the african-american community we'll be able to impact black businesses as a whole but um yeah it's i mean i think we were sitting here today and uh, lexi you said how did you get gas you know where did you go and you're right you know and then we talked about uh you know supermarkets they're in the city of philadelphia which is where um we are i'm located there may be two three African-American owned grocery stores. The others are some of them more bodega like some of them are more You know just kind of stands or huts and it, not huts, but stands, you know fruit stands trucks that kind of thing and I mean it was it was in, incredibly difficult to You know you need to go pick up bananas and you know other things other than you know food that you're gonna eat today you know that that was hard you can't I can't just go get food I'm gonna eat today I need to eat I need to have food to last a week, two weeks, three weeks, whatever it is. So, um, you know, it's 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 very interesting to see just how we span African American businesses span different um, different uh, industries because that was also the part that you saw that was very limiting. What you know, we don't own you know many gas stations as we talked about. You, we 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 don't see African Americans owning um, you know like we said. Uh, pharmacies or something so you can go purchase your you know your uh, you know prescriptions there we don't have you know many of these uh, these kind of companies you, you know like we said building cars I do you know I did research on like people who have designed cars that are of african-american descent or you know to see and actually random Chrysler 300 so if anybody's in the market there you go um, but you know it's those kind of 
it, 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 it took a while. It took a very long time to kind of get it down to a good science where I could say, okay, this is the place I'm going to eat. These are the hair products I plan to buy, hair, hair and food. I think those, because of their industries that we, we see a lot of ourselves in, fashion, we see a lot of ourselves there. Um, and that's just more and more lately, but you know, it was tough for me trying to, I, I wanted to open up bank accounts at black owned banks, but I mean, that's across town, but like really across town. Some of them don't have the online capabilities that you would wish. Some of them don't have the services you wish. I was, as we said, I was actually, I was looking, you know, we, um, my husband and I have been looking for a home and I wanted to get my loan through a black owned bank. Good luck. Um, it's very difficult sometimes. I mean, there are some on, you know, some banks that are black owned that are online. I think there's a really big one that's located. They're based in California. Um, that they have, they have some of the services you're looking for. But if I wanted to get one in Philadelphia, and we do have a black owned bank in Philadelphia, United Bank of Philadelphia. Shout out to them. Um, you know, some of the services that I was requiring or I was needing um, could not be fulfilled by that bank. So. It does take um, dedication, it does take some willpower, it does take, you know, again, being intentional with your dollars, but the benefits are so, you know, pronounced. They're so, it's just so much. Like, you know, we're we're a community right now where, um, uh, what is it, a dollar is uh, spent, a, a, a dollar that comes into the black community is spent within 17 minutes, I think it was said, it was spent less than 17 minutes. And in, in like a white community, it'll stay for 17 days. And like the Asian community, it'll stay for eight or nine days. Like our, the money that comes in goes right like out. Like it and circulates. Like it circulates. I mean, it's Yeah, because I've gone. seen that. It's like a dollar maybe circulates twice in the black community, but in the white community, it circulates like 10 times or something like that. So, I mean, I think that's a really good point to make. Um, there's a really good infographic for that too. Maybe yeah. we'll share that. We have to share, we should share that somehow. <laughs> yeah, but it is it is an important point to make, um, and then also to give credit to African American and Black consumers that buying power is really it kind of outnumbers the other demographics. Um, and I think actually I had a I had a boss who or mentor who told me um, we shouldn't call it black profound we shouldn't call it spending power because power implies that if you move it and if you're intended if you move it that that's going to shake that industry and there's probably good documented um, you know resources that say that that may or may not happen should we have we would have to kind of, I guess, as a community pull together to say, no, we only plan to spend here, we only plan to spend there, um, because, so, I, he, I don't know, he, he always fought on that, it's not really power, because if it was gone today, if it was taken today, or if it was, if we, if we all said today, okay, we're not going to spend money here anymore, you know, what, what happens, does, it, does that money get moved someplace else? Does that does money still trickle to that area? Like even if you look at like um, like H and M, whenever when you know they had that issue, when everybody was in uproar, they gave eighty percent off and everybody's back and no more no more uproar. Right. And everybody now, forgot. Everybody forgot, and this is like it let time pass, it lets other things pass, and people are still buying. And it's and it's um, 
and and I under, I mean I understand obviously as we talk like yes that, that's that's power because we're in the trillions of dollars I think at this point. Um, but when you look at those reports, you look at where we're spending it, and you know we're spending it on you know um, like self care products and and things of that nature. And um, you know like I said, it spans industries that we see we typically see ourselves in. It doesn't span the ones that we typically don't see ourselves in. So. That's interesting though because, so H&M was really, uh, they were upset briefly and then gave us the coupons, but then um, Shea Moisture got a lot more backlash and I felt like they were, they, I, I don't know if like it was a more disparate thing like because they were only in like really in the black market whereas H&M was getting all these different groups, maybe Shea Moisture had to respond and then they sold Dove. What happened with Shea Moisture? They had a commercial um, where it was predominantly white women talking about loving Shea Moisture products in their hair, and it was a brand built on the black woman's head, essentially. And actually, and I... Who was it owned by? It, it was owned by a black woman, but it bought, bought by Unilever. When I tell you, it's sad to me at this point because Shea Moisture makes a ton of products for children, and I, I actually just have a, I have a 13-month-old and so it's very tough to find any kind of products that's natural based for his but come hell or high water we find additional ones i we no longer use shea moisture in our home because it's no longer black owned you know um that industry especially that industry i mean built on the backs of black people where i mean you see how i mean i don't i have to look it up um, and i'll do it while somebody else talks but like the amount of money that we spend on hair care and hair products and skin care and that kind those pro- it's staggering it's astounding like it's more than some countries have in in net worth like we spend that much in a year and to to know that that money is not even circulating among ourselves and only really circulating is making other people rich and other communities rich is mind-boggling so i think we've been seeing a lot more kind of come out of and you can you let me know but we're seeing a lot more come out of um companies that do decide to kind of go you know um mainstream you know get that get bought by other bigger companies um and and kind of the, the the seeing new faces come into the game which is good even like rihanna's fenty which is a skincare line you know, yeah, I think I just saw this week she has this older African American model who is I mean, this woman has to be I mean, black don't correct it was like she must be seventy ish. She gotta be hundred and ten because she looks like fifty. But um she's like the, the national spokeswoman for like Fenty, this Fen- this Fenty line and it's like I mean, she's an older woman, gray hair, I mean she looks flawlessly awesome, but you know, um, and, and its own, and I think Rihanna, Rihanna has made a, a point to say that she's keeping the predominant ownership in it, um, just to show, like, no, 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 we need to, we need to own ours, we need to own our own, especially if we're going to be, you know, using it as much as we are, and, 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 you know, that was one thing, you know, she wanted to make sure all skin colors were included, and, and, you know, that it was, it was inclusive of everything and everyone, but, but yeah, and like I said, I think with more people going more natural, that has only helped. But I think um, 
with with more people coming into the game but I, I mean I think it's still it speaks volumes when you see that these companies are still out there and they're the african-american women are still sometimes the face of the company but have absolutely zero to you know or have very little ownership or don't or have a minority stake in it and you know and just kind of how african-americans react to it now I didn't see the one thing I, I don't see more, which I would love to see, is that when a company that was African-American owned is no longer African-American owned, like, where is it? I never see the uproar. I'm always waiting to see the uproar. I'm like, what? This is not, this is crazy. Oh, I can't shop here anymore. And it's like, that never happens. Like, I don't, oh, I don't say never. It seldom happens. It seldom happens to the way that, like, wow, okay, where are we going next then? These are the other people that, and I, I, I think this, like recently, some I saw someone post, okay, this this company is no longer African American minority uh, majority owned. These are though, and and kind of point people in a direction so that people have again resources and places to be like, all right, well, this is where we're going now, um, so that they know where to to again be intentional with their money. But is there a specific website that you can go to that is a good directory? I, I like buy black. Um, and they're on Instagram. They're heavy. Yeah, I used to use official Black Wall Streets, but I I was in a Black-owned bookstore, uh, sorry, a Black-owned coffee shop, and it wasn't, like, pinging. Come on, come on. I can see her. She's right here. <laughs> yeah, so I'm wondering, like, how do you... Because I, I think I, I looked at, maybe it was by Black, um, the website, and... I was looking for black owned restaurants. Oh, we buy black. Yeah. I was looking for black owned restaurants. I think in New York City, in Harlem, because I was trying to meet up with some folks and we specifically wanted to eat at a black owned restaurant. And um, there was very few that were showing up. And I was like, I know that there's more. So why are only some of them here? Is it just a lack of knowledge on like? the part of whoever is creating the site or is there some kind of like system where people sign up I don't know I think it's a crowd I think people put it in there or maybe they the owners do so I think they have to know there's no you were saying earlier we don't have a green book anymore yeah. so like I would love a green book Yelp <laughs> give me a place yeah. Did I just like throw away a whole business idea no <laughs> it's like let's make this now <laughs> Like I would copyright. Yeah, get <laughs> I would love to see like where are the places I can stay that you know where are the places I can get. Where can I find my my gas station? Where can I find my grocery store? And the one question I will throw out here just to shake up the whole conversation: Have black businesses have black owned businesses? And I've heard certain things, but have black owned businesses want? wanted to get away from or do they want to get away from being quote-unquote a black-owned business because of the stigmas that go along with being a black-owned business so for example if you're talking about a restaurant you know do they let's just say they have southern cuisine i know many in the city that do do they state specifically for a black-owned restaurant in their yelp listing or in their marketing or in anything that they have or are they leaving it up to the consumer to find that that information out? You know, um, again, if they find out that they're, uh, uh, is it something where I'm a black owned restaurant or it's I'm a restaurant that serves this kind of cuisine and I happen to be black? You know, and I think that that's a big distinction because I think we now, we have to start showing, not only do we have to educate consumers 
on the need to be intentional with money. We also, you know, and spend black and buy black. We also have to show black businesses why they need to market themselves as such and what the what the uptick that they should see or what they should expect to see in, in consumers and in buyers and in everything else by identifying as such. Because if they don't, then, and we make it, we continue to make it hard for people to find these companies, they're not going to. And that's where I think kind of rubber meets the road sometimes. That's interesting. I was talking to someone who's a, a black writer and she definitely um, embraces her blackness and uses that as a part of her branding. But she said, as much as she does that, as much as she creates programming that she feels would bring in more black customers, that's not who her main audience is. And like she's she's out there hustling and she's trying. And um, this is the same person who I was in the shop and I couldn't. I was literally looking at this woman, and I'm like, I don't know why this website is not pinging at me right now. But she um, she didn't know how to get us in, but because she was a coffee shop. Um, she was um, she wasn't able to to get that like she wasn't able to, to bring us in at the same volume that she could get um, white and um, maybe Latino customers but I don't I don't know that she was well, it's also based on where she's located yeah. too because she's in Kensington yeah. right yeah so I mean people are like I think you have to be you have to find those that are gonna be willing to travel there's other, there's um, Mark Lamont Hill, whom I love, Philly, he reps Philly also. He has um, Uncle Bobby's Books mm-hmm. in Germantown. I live in South Philly. Every time I'm in Germantown, I go to that book Absolutely. store. Every single time. Doesn't matter. And I'm in Germantown probably easily a few times a month, every single time. Why? Because that's a black bookstore and I gotta go, I have to be a patron. Um, even if it doesn't make much of a difference, my couple of hours will, I buy food, I buy drinks. I may or may not buy a book, usually it's baby books, but I may or may not buy a book um, or, or apparel or something, but I have to leave that store having purchased something, you know? Um, and I think it's it's all in the way, you know, he brands that. He also has a, a much bigger following, so it's, it's a lot easier to do when you um, are a little more established. But, um, but yeah, like I said, it's some of some, you know, so the people will come. It's just that you have to, you know, you have to put it out there. And sometimes when you are putting it out there, maybe you're not putting it out there in the way that, you know, you would grab and, and you know, gravitate, um, you know, people that would, would gravitate toward it. Like, um, Marsha Maine, I'm also, I'm throwing out black businesses everywhere. Marsha Maine is a, um, she's a, she's a, it's like a hair product store. Natural, typically natural products, but she has a lot of everything. She recently just had a, um, a twist out demonstration at her store. I mean, tickets were going that fast. I I went into the store, it's on South Street, it's right off of South Street, like 4th and South, 5th and South. And I went in for something, She, she uh, the owner was there, she was telling me about it. I, I had um, seen the owner at some other kind of networking thing before. And I, I was like, yes, I'm gonna definitely get in here. I mean, tickets go quick. And I mean, it's just, again, and, and how she markets and the way she markets and where she does it at. So it's, I mean, I think we also need to help our, those, those businesses come up, not come up with ideas, but show them or guide them as a consumer to say, these are the things we want and these are the things we need. She's also doing a hair wrap one 
um, like a like a actual like head wrapping one. Yeah, wrapping a head. She she's doing one of those I think coming up too. So that's also you know again something that your people will will go to it. It's not, it's not as my part of South Philly. It's easily you know you're talking you know do I take the train? Do I got an Uber? Do I have to do all of these things to get there? But again, if we make it intentional, you know, and we, and we promote that within, and this is just everybody, just kind of the business that we do and the business that we keep and how we try to do it with others, then, you know, it, it will continue, it will catch on, it will continue to catch on and to, to the point where hopefully it's not a thing to do anymore. It's not like, oh, well, I'm only going to do black business for a year. You should have a monthly commitment. Every time your paycheck comes in, whether it's bi-monthly or it's every month or if it's weekly, if you got it like that, every time you get a paycheck in, you need to say, okay, 20%, 40%, 80%, 90%, whatever it is that you can do is going to a black-owned business. Black-owned business says, you know, and that needs to be on everybody's agenda. Yeah, and just, I think just being very intentional and knowing where you're spending your money. Um, But you also touched on a point that I was talking about in the pre-recording. You missed it, Dom. Dom just entered the room. I've been here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Fly on the wall. But um, <laughs> you said you're letting you're letting it be a woman, a woman run. Woman, the woman's care, the woman's yeah, woman's lounge, the CGM's woman's lounge. CGM ladies' lounge. <laughs> <laughs> we um, gotta get more listeners. I'm sorry. Yeah, we're hoping to increase our listenership sure. by, um, by having the ladies, ladies run the show. <laughs> But you were talking about um, trying to rewind in my brain. Uh, you were talking about something that I was also talking about earlier, how I had seen on Instagram this woman who was saying, don't let them treat you like a black-owned business. You were saying that there's black-owned businesses that don't really promote themselves as such. And her whole point was, if when you're a black-owned business, customers are quick to criticize if something goes wrong and um, so I was just wondering like any thoughts on that yeah actually this reminds me of the H&M Shea Moisture again because everyone like I remember I I canceled Shea Moisture because I think they were still owned by the family and um, they and I, I was so like I I spent all this money on making black castor oil set. How can you do this to me? I give you guys my monthly like I don't even know how much I was spending, but I just felt so disrespected and I canceled them. Did I fully cancel H and M? I mean, the trading Target for H and M is not really canceling H and M. It's I mean. I still was like, oh, I need these leggings from somewhere. I guess I can't go here. I'll just go over here, and. You know, I did move to a different company for a while, and then I realized that I was treating Shea Moisture. I held them to a much higher standard than I held um, H&M to, and I eventually did go out and buy some leggings at H&M. I'm sorry. I, yeah, but it's okay. You're, not, you're one of, of, of everyone. <laughs> many, many. Now, I, I, I um, kind of back to that, that point. Like, to be honest, to be a black business in, in America, my hat's off to everyone that does it and, and does it successfully because not only is you have so many cards stacked against you 
um, including financing, getting financing. Um, that is hard to get, let alone as any business. And then add the fact that you're a black-owned business, it's even harder to get. Um, patronage by, like I said, we're having an entire conversation about how you know black business and why it's important that we patronize these businesses so when we make them, we help them to succeed and grow. If we were white-owned companies, there they do not have to think about this. Mainstream companies do not have to think about will the people come. That's never that's never a thing. Um, you're right. Uh, uh, black businesses they are held, held to a high standard, and then when something does go wrong, never ever have I ever heard any 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 person for a mainstream business say, "Ugh, that white-owned business, he didn't respect me. I will never shop white again." If you ever hear anybody say they have never shopped white again or will never shop white again, I've never even heard anyone say, you know what, that Asian, you know, that Chinese restaurant, they were so rude. I will never shop Chinese again. I will never shop Asian again. If you hear that, bet on bet on the lottery because you're about to get a lot of money. Like this is you because you will never hear it. It, it will never be said. It will, words will never be uttered. But what will be uttered is. That stupid black-owned company, I will never shop black again. I will never do black again. And they can easily never do black again. Right, and when I was trying to find this video and I just typed it into Google, because I had seen it on Instagram, I couldn't find it, and I wanted to find it in, you know, I was Googling it, and that's exactly what came up. Like, I couldn't find the video, but the things that came up were why I won't shop black anymore, or, you know, six reasons why black owned businesses fail and it was like so many exactly. different things like that and the worst is also the worst offenders mm -hmm. I want to say are ourselves mm -hmm. like even black owned businesses I got into a, a Facebook argument with somebody that said oh well, you know how black owned businesses are or you know how black businesses are and then come to find out through the through us going back and forth and our banter because I was like well no let me tell you about black businesses they're amazing and you did that and he was just like yeah, I know, I, I'm a black business owner. And I was like, sir, how can you possibly say these things then? You can't, you have to watch your, your words because people are listening to you. Like, we just had this entire dialogue and at the end you tell me, so to me it makes me feel like, well, sir, you're a self-hating black owner. You're a self, you know, depreciate, like you're a self, a self-loathing black business owner when it's so hard to get clients and customers and people that will you know vouch for your company it's so hard to stay afloat you know they say uh you know most businesses are successful for the first three years like you usually are you know running in the, in the black you know or in the red like you know what i mean in the first few years if you can last five years then you know that you can sustain at least at some level and it's like you know i don't think we're giving we're not even giving them the opportunity to be able to run like we're already, we're, like I said, we're stacking the deck against them and then telling them succeed. And then when, they, when something happens, which in every business it will, I will never do it again, never. And now every black business is off the table forever because of one, one instance with this one person. Again, how many times have you been to Target and you'd be like, oh, that person at Target talk crazy to me. Or, oh, you know, this white owned business or this mainstream business, I, you know, I just, I, I didn't care for them, but that doesn't mean you will never go, you might never go to that business again, but that doesn't mean you will never go to any mainstream, you know, and I think it's, again, those mindsets that are just ingrained, and it's just, it's, it's like I said, it's a constant fight trying to get out of those. I read an article today, and it said that 
makes no sense like how few black owned businesses there are in this city. In a city with 44% uh, of the population is black, only three or four percent of the businesses are black owned. We were, Dom and I were just texting about this today. I was like, fact check me. Yeah. Because. Well, I guess I, I got tagged in. Yeah, Dom. Right? Wait, no, finish your thought. Finish your thought. And then and, I'm going to. But like this, this is like another hurdle for black owned businesses to overcome because it's just like an extra layer that black businesses have to think about that mainstream owners don't. Right, like as you said, no one's gonna be like, "Oh, I was disrespected at Target. I will never go to a white-owned business again." Like, even if you, even if by some miracle you had that thought, okay, so you got your door. How are you gonna, you know, pay for your credit card? How are you gonna pay for your your medication? What that thought gets like off the railroad tracks as soon as it you have it. Yeah, as soon as you have to live it. Yeah. So I had texted Dom about that that percentage of, what did you say, like 5% or 3%? I think so. So last night I was at an event and somebody that I know was on stage receiving an award and he said only 2.5% of businesses in Philadelphia are black owned. And I was like, whoa, that sounds really, really way too low. I got to fact check it with... The, the all-knowing, all-seeing, dumb. And so, yeah, I texted him, and I was like, I was like, what is this? Like, is this? This can't be true. So, what's the number? Well, if you if you understand like census data, um, your labor statistics data, that they're always gonna skew the term and the definition of firm and business. So, 2.5% of the businesses in Philadelphia that are black-owned have employees. Big difference. It's a big difference. (laughs) So, you know, it's a very low number of black-owned businesses that actually, A, report the people that they pay, and then are paying um, uh, withholdings and things of that nature. So when they they take that, that number, they're not counting all the businesses that are solely ran and operated by the one person that's the owner of the business because they're not reporting to Bureau of Labor Statistics and not giving them um, like the withholdings and not getting those things from them. So it's, uh, like you said, it's, uh, 44% of the population is African-American. It's roughly, you know, 600 plus thousand people. And if you drive down any street in Philadelphia, you're going to see black-owned business of the black-owned business. It's just a lot of them aren't open correctly. So that's why we're here, to, to help them. So some people don't even register their business. They just open it up and put a sign out front. It's almost, you know, there's 8 million people in New York, but it's probably another four that nobody, nobody knows <laughs> exists, right? So that's I think that's where, when you, when you rely on the numbers, you have to report to be counted. And a lot of times we don't, we don't put our... You know, we scared of paperwork. So, <laughs> so, I mean, I think there's some clarification to that. And then the biggest thing is there's 60, and there's like 88,000 um, businesses in Philadelphia. 66,000 of them don't have employees. So, you know, a large percentage. 88,000 black businesses. No, 88,000 businesses oh, is, okay. in, in general. Are in Philadelphia, you know, according to the last census data that came out, 66,000 of them, some, some more than 77 percent, like 76 percent of them, don't have employees. 
they make $2.5 billion. The 22% of the 22,000 that have employees make over $198 billion. So it's, but yeah, it's like, so 66,000 companies make, you know, 2% of the money <laughs> in, this, in the city. So when you, when you look at a Comcast and you look at these businesses, that grow and get to that that level, um, a lot of it is just, you know, being able to last for 30 years. You know, Comcast started the Roberts family and now they have two towers that change the skyline. Um, so do we have the foresight and do we have the capacity to say let's last for 30 years? A lot of times I think, you know, in a city like Philadelphia, people make a business to survive. Not necessarily to be a um, a dynasty, so to speak. And so the whites, you know, barbecue place in North Philadelphia, they had they had two locations. I'm not sure if the one in West Philly is still open, but you know, no, nah, I, mean, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So it's the whites have been on uh, Germantown Avenue, Germantown area for ever. Where's the Where's the whites four, five, six? Whereas you look at um, Honey Grow, which started in 2012, 13, with one spot. It's seven years later, they got 30 up and down the East Coast. Yeah, they're, they're approaching 30. I know, like, I think two years ago, they were on like 22. They started in Philly? Mm-hmm. Started in Philly with one, then they got two, and then, you know, now Justin Rosenberg. We did an event with them in 2014, and he told the story about you know, he went to 100 investors, they turned him down, then he got with Steven Starr, and that was the first investment. And now, you know, he owns very little, well, I can't say very little, but he doesn't own as much of the company as he did when he started, but now there's 22 to 30 of them up and down these, I was in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and there's a honey girl out there on, Ruck, on Rutgers campus. So I think the, the notion, the, the idea of business is very different when you have a people that have largely been um, unemployed or underemployed or underpaid. And so they, they start a business just kind of just to survive, not thinking about, yeah, I'm going to turn this thing into a 20-chain uh, franchise or things of that nature. So I, 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 to jump on that point, I think also the opportunities that are afforded and awarded to companies like that, like, yeah, okay, they may have started to survive, mm-hmm. and they say, you know what, maybe we'll just be able to pass it down to one generation, mm-hmm. and that's fine by us, but in terms of growing it, I don't know how many decide, because I think once they do own, they feel like giving up any piece of it, no matter what the percentage of it is, um, is, is a bad thing, necessarily. And it's, you know, so like you said, yeah, he doesn't own, I think one of the things that he, that out of that first meeting I had been at once with him was, we're not a franchise, we own, we own it all. And now, now that there's 30, okay, say it again, <laughs> like, um, but I think with companies, it's, it's like the, those opportunities that come out, like how many African American, you know, chefs is Steven Starr teaming up with? Mm-hmm. And then where are our black owned chefs that are, making it and doing well are they reinvesting in the community or are they reinvesting where it needs to be invested so are they kind of looking at the next 
generation of people coming up and saying, let me teach the game, let me show how to how to make it, how to make it so you can have more than one store. Like, I think one good example of someone doing it well here in the city is um, the Bynum Brothers. Bynum Brothers have a few different restaurants. They have Relish in the Chestnut Hill area. They have, um, they have South, which is right here on Broad Street, right in almost Center City, like Broad and, uh, actually, I don't even know what you call it, like, what's that? Oh, no, yeah. it's Green, green Soul. Like, green, yeah, green, oh, Green Soul, yeah. So, and there is um, Warm, Daddies. Warm Daddies, which is down in South Philly. So, I mean, and they have, you know, they were in the running terminal market, I thought, for a minute, a hot minute. Um, they may still be there, too. So, they, they're obviously a, an organization that has scaled and grown um, and done well. And it's, and it's, like I said, that mentality. I know, I think even Kevin Parker at one point, Kevin Parker had a few different restaurants and spots around the city. And it comes to, okay, you, you guys have reached this level of more than one. How do you, you know, are you bringing on talent that can learn and grow from you? Are you showing, are you, you know, handing down and showing like, hey, here are the keys to take, take advantage of, to drop, drop the knowledge, you know, and, and assisting in the development of some of these. And I think that sometimes the answer is yes, but I don't, some of those opportunities, I don't even know if they have the money to invest in something like if I were to come up with a hey I have a a um you know a restaurant that I want to do and actually I do it want for lights but don't take that you know what I mean like you know and this is the kind of you know food that we want to have and this is the kind of drinks that we want to have and you know are they at the point where they could invest in something like that you know and and say you know yeah we're going to take this and we'll move it and we'll use my name to start it because like Steven Starr he's at use that I think sometimes on something that's definitely going to succeed you know and and you know and so it's, it's just do they have the can they and if they can are they and if they can't then how do we grow and scale yeah. without it it was uh, it's funny we had um, this might have been 2014 one of our clients she had spine of us Philly um, went from working out of a a bar in the kitchen to a truck to her own location in like less than 18 months and so her thing was I want to be in the airport and so what we told her was like well airport doesn't hire brands they hire systems like you gotta come in and it's gotta be airtight so your accounting um, how you get the, the inventory like all that stuff just has to be tight so we met with the the person who was African American that ran um, the commercial side of the airport. So he he brought in all the brands that were that, was, that you would find in the food court for selling the vendors. And he loved it. He was like, "Look, hey, you know, come on in. I'm gonna show you the different corridors, the concourses that you could be on. But this is what we get. This is the rules. You gotta open up at 5:45 a.m. every day. If not, you get fined." You gotta close at such and such every day. You close early, you get fine. You get this, you get that. Like you, you can't be sold out of stuff. You know, you gotta. And then we're checking inventory, so you get a percentage of what you sell. And so after the meeting, we were talking. We're like, yeah, you know, so you ready to get the accounting, get the books. And it changed. It was a while. I don't know if I want to be in the airport. You know, and so. At that point, 
it's not it's not about the product it's not about any of that stuff is are we ready to be a business because there's we can be self-employed which a lot of us do we just become self-employed so we can pay bills and go on vacation but are you ready to be a business is the question that we have to ask ourselves and you know like you said a lot of people are like oh man I own 100% of this business. It's awesome to have that that idea, but now we gotta look at each other and say, well, in order for me to grow, I have to multiply. You know, I have to do this, I have to do that. So, do we will we invest in our own businesses? Will we invest in other people's businesses so that they can grow, so that they can be four or five of this restaurant or five of these grocery stores? You know, things of that nature. But at the end of the day, in order to do that, the business has to be ran really, really tight. And so that's where we, the education that comes into it, the ability, the wherewithal to understand margins um, is what makes it difficult to see 12 Tootsies, you know, nationwide or even four, you know, let's get four. There's a spot we go to that's not black owned, it's Baby Blues. They have like four restaurants. They have San Francisco, bring two in Texas, and one here, then they're doing stuff with the sta- at the stadiums. And it's, you know, relatively small compared to other chain places, but the amount of, the amount of mechanism behind having those amount of places is something that we have to take pride in. You know, as well as it's not just about the money, but also understanding how we measure margins, and that's what people buy. That's what investors buy. They buy the book. Uh, okay, then you know we still try not to sell the the recipe. Um, Colonel Sanders been let that recipe go, man. He, everybody can make chicken, like we. <laughs> you know, so those are the things that we we still we still struggle with. We still struggle with the surfacey stuff. Like, I don't want somebody else to have my recipe. I don't want this. You know, I don't trust somebody to go shop for me. Things of that nature. So it's a very, it's a delicate line of: Do they have the opportunity to? Do they have the knowledge and the wherewithal to? Are we going to support? I mean, you know, people going shopper to shop, and I think we see every day. Linda was in here she's seen it like how many people are starting their businesses that are um black or brown and you know the city's chock full of it it's just whether here new york boston wherever atlanta are we saying okay now what's the next level of business that we can ascend to that's the key question it's interesting you mentioned like buying the book and growing the system i talked to a funder six to nine months ago, which is, this is, this is on me. Um, I gave him my business plan and I said, here's my idea. And he said, this is great. You did such a good job with this, but this is one. Mm-hmm. And I don't want, like if the margins for food service businesses are so low, you're not gonna make any money. And if something should happen, say for instance, someone drives their car through your building, live in Philly, this has happened. Um, your business shuts down, you don't have any income coming in. I want to see what modeling opening five looks like. And I said, but in, in my mind, I didn't say to him, mm-hmm. literally, I just modeled the accounting for this. I was so proud of myself for doing the one, but he was looking at it from an investor, investor perspective of, I can't make any money. Like if something should happen to this 
I'm going to lose my big investment in you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also want to see you succeed. And seeing you succeed means that you have to have, you have to stack these stores together mm-hmm. because that way you actually have a lot of income coming in. You'll stick with it because if you only have the one and you have a challenging, like maybe there's a hardship in your family and your margin's only ten to $25,000, if you shut down to go get an office job where someone else is paying for your bill, you might come out better off. And so you leave this investor holding the bag. Mm-hmm. So you said like, redo it. And I'm still trying to figure that out because it's a different skill. Yeah. Right? Changing and I think, yeah, I think scale. Cause I, and I, that's the word I'm always thinking of. Like a, uh, I had a client way back when, uh, you know, you have those incubators and those, um, you know, small, I don't know small business incubators, but the incubators and the start and the, um, the accelerators that really try to work with you to get you to understand about the scaling. And it's like, okay, yeah, this idea is great. This storefront is great. This whatever is great. How will you make it scale over X amount of time? You know, what does your pro forma look like? Okay, when can you expect to get the, like, because investors, they want to know, okay, when can I expect to at the very least break even? So that way I've gotten my money back. And then when can I begin to expect to be making money on top of the investment that I already put in? You know, when when are you going to be asking me for additional funds or for me to reach out to my buddies, you know, millionaire A and millionaire you know, C over here and us to come in and, and, and all three of us or all four of us or whomever or we build a collective of individuals looking to invest because we see that this is this can be you know, a, a whatever kind of entity. And I think that, again, that uh, you're right, it just goes back to education and allowing ourselves to see outside of just our original circumstances. Like, okay, circumstances indicate right now I need a job. Circumstances indicate right now no one is hiring me, so I'm gonna create my own job. Okay, great. Now that you created your own job and you see that you are making a profit, you're able to live off of it, how do you scale this so that this can continue to make money for you, your family. Mm-hmm. If you decide to, you want, you want to get an, you know, go public. Can you, can you do that with this entity or this idea or whatever it is? And, um, and what does that look like? And how do you begin to put those pieces together? You know, because I do some, I do think that we sometimes think small. And then even with those larger companies that we see, um, you know, I think the one, the one thing we teach in business school is like, what is your out? What is the what is the, the either the dollar amount, the circumstance, or whatever it is that is your out that you would say, okay, I'll, I will part with the company at this point as long as I and then and then what does that relationship look like? Because that's what you're always planning for, or you should be planning for the minute that you get to this pinnacle where, okay, I can be bought out. And um, we like you said, we don't see that. You can, everybody kind of holds everything to the chest, thinking that someone is going to take it. And I mean, it's. It's sad because that's it's happened that way, mm-hmm. where you know ideas have been taken and and brands have been stolen and things have happened where it, you know it's been it's been taken away and it's like man I can't you know what am I supposed to do with it now mm-hmm. I, you know this person stole it okay but it's not every person and it's like you got to figure out again putting all your systems in place which is why CGM is here to help with that <laughs> plug. Um, <laughs> No, but putting all the systems in place, putting down, getting your, you know, getting your business filings, getting, you know, letting uh, the team here connect you with financing options, 
you know, your branding, your marketing, you know, what does that look like? You know, making sure that you have all the basics and the fundamentals taken care of. And then, you know, being able to figure, you know, like I said, scale and work with people who, you know, will be in your corner to help you to scale and to get you to the next level. And then for those that are at the next level, again, to reach down and pull up others if you see that they have something that's viable. Now, I'm not saying that everybody, you can't go and help everybody, but if you see someone that comes to you and they're coming correct and they have something that's viable, something that's solid and sound, and it just needs some of your wisdom or experience on it, then lend it, you know? It doesn't, it doesn't hurt, you know, it only helps. And again, it, it helps to create wealth among a community that at the top it there's not many of us and and you know it's not as brown and black and black up there you know and so how do we get more brown and black in that arena so that it's no longer a thing like we get we still get said oh that's the first black woman to have this wow are we still there we're still there the first black woman or whatever i think that's like a perfect segue into the article that I sent to you today, that you posted, that we've been talking about. <laughs> Do you wanna talk about it? Yeah. What part of that? It? Um, just this idea of even if there are black and brown faces at the top, that capitalism is still capitalism. Yeah, I think I think it's all intent. I mean, anything you do is driven by the intention. Um, so, you know, the article that Linda's referring to is uh, uh, written in Philly Mag, which has a checky past when it comes to <laughs> a sketch past when it comes to reporting on Philadelphia, um, Philadelphia socioeconomics. Yeah. Well, it was an opinion piece. It was an opinion and piece written by a, a black journalist. So I think they. You know, Philly Mag tried to, you know, cover the, like, at least check the first two boxes, like, <laughs> can can this be written, and if it's written, who shall write it? Um, and so the piece was, gentrification can be black, like, you know, black developers can also gentrify a neighborhood, and so what's happening in Philadelphia is there's um, displacement going on in traditionally black and brown neighborhoods. And for a lot, a lot of people just equated to like white people moving in, or you know, a different race moving in that um, into the neighborhood and changing the vibe, the feel, coffee shops, artists, whatever. Just joking. Just joking. <laughs> but the article is saying like, hey, council president Daryl Clark, other council, other members of city council, don't feign like you're doing us a favor by giving. X percentage of um, development to black developers because they may be just as bad. They may want even a, a more ritzy duplex or condo or place in what was a traditionally um, low-income black or brown neighborhood. So just giving the just awarding the contract or the land to a black developer doesn't solve the gentrification problem if their intent is to just sell it to white, a white consumer or to, um, I guess, what's the word? Um, I guess assimilate is kind of strong, but to even present that idea that, okay, this is comfortable for a particular lifestyle. 
I think that's the core of gentrification, like the lifestyle change. You know, when you, because yeah, you can be black and gentrified neighborhood if you don't come into that neighborhood or emote the same lifestyle that the neighborhood had or the culture that the neighborhood had. Um, there's a there's a bad website, not bad as in um, malicious, but just kind of like on the outside looking in, knowing everything that's going on. There's a website that features the neighborhood that I live in, and it was literally an ad for gentrification. You know, it showed like Fifth Street and people in costumes, like they're traditional, uh, traditionally from Puerto Rico, and then like bad. You know, this word in Spanish means this. So it looked like an ad to go to Puerto Rico for a white vacation. It's literally like Fifth and Lehigh. And it was like, it was from a nonprofit that's supposed to have been like working in the neighborhood. And they hired these people from outside of the neighborhood to write this story and create this content. And, you know, the question to them was, well, who was the target for this? Because if you're targeting people in the neighborhood, they don't need to know what suburb means. Right? <laughs> but they're like, well, we're trying to get people from out of the neighborhood. Well, why? Why do you need people from outside the neighborhood to be in the neighborhood? Or, so those, they're like, they were Latina from New York and Chicago. And this is a Latin and an African-American neighborhood. And But the intent was to bring in a different lifestyle, a different person. So I think... Gentrification, thinking that to Linda's point, capitalism, um, it does have a face and it has a color, but it, I think now it's really just intent and like what are we trying to do with the money and how much money are you really trying to make? And you know, I, I feel I think black people and Latinos, um, if they're in a certain vein, they feel there's more of a responsibility, like the more you know more opportunity you have, you have a, a responsibility to kind of reach back and give it to people that, that don't know and don't understand. And so we, I think we talked about it in the, pre, the pre-production of, if you have a choice of sitting on a property that your mother or your grandmother owned or selling it for $25,000 real fast, a lot of people are going to choose the 25000 It's like, oh, it's a come up. As opposed to thinking like ownership and developing it and holding it and, you know, having it be a family centerpiece. So, yeah, the, the article is interesting. It focused on one particular developer. Um, you know, for us, we do a lot of stuff in our neighborhood, in our community. Some of it is centered on development. And we've been in those rooms with the same council people and other people of city government. And the conversation, you know, is interesting. So I can't I can't say that the article was that far off base, given that we, given the fact that we've had a similar conversation um, about what we're trying to do, which you know, in our eyes, we feel like it's more social, um, socially equal for our our people and our community. But there's like a social impact. There's a social impact component to it, like where we're it's not about us making money it's just more a protection and creating an, a self-sustaining economy that's really self-sustaining like hey you have your restaurant you have this but you're from the neighborhood and you can give back so I don't know I mean, everybody thinks their cause is just at one point so, so I want to throw a little bit of a monkey wrench into mm-hmm. this head like something both, both of you have talked about um, sorry I left up and like moderator all of a sudden <laughs> um 
like the idea of like reaching back, like if you have more information, reaching back. Um, I've just been reading a book called Elephant Rage by Brittany Cooper. She talks about what it means to, like, when you get that, you got pushed by your neighborhood to get this information, to bring it back. There's a lot of weight that's on you that, like, you're fighting against people who don't have that same weight against you. So, like, if you are, you know, a person who wants to, like, come back to your neighborhood, do the right thing, you're competing against people who have, um, in ways some ways more freedom to do whatever they want because they're not encumbered by the same feelings of responsibility. So, I don't know, like, I don't know what to do with this. This idea of like, to, I'm in this situation in my own neighborhood where I'm part of my community's um, CDC's board and I, I want to do the best thing but I'm competing against people who have a lot of money and have a lot of ability to do whatever they want. And so like, I'm always trying to keep like, my, my just goal in front of me, but I don't know, it's, it's hard because you're fighting against people who don't have that. They're looking at their pockets. So how do you? Fight, fight yeah. in that war, that battle. Um, I mean, that's a similar situation that I guess that we face, you know, we, we have to go into a, a situation and say, who do we want to work with when it comes to this? And, other missions align with ours, other values align with ours, and it gets, you know, sometimes you're like, man, just chalk it in, you know, go for broke and, you know, get in and get in, work with who, with whoever that's, that's doing it. Um, but I think that's, for us, it's Pennywise, Town Foolish. Um, so everybody doesn't have the same patience or the same, I guess, like, far, um, far-sightedness. So it can it can be tempting to people, I think, to, to like, man, this guy can go and just buy whatever and do whatever because he doesn't have this consciousness that I'm, you know, quote-unquote burdened with. So unfortunately, the last segment of our podcast did get cut off. We had some technical difficulties. It was also kind of late at night when we were recording. Apologies for that. We had a really great discussion and I feel like we could go on and on for hours just talking and sharing stories and data points and so on. Um, If you want to find a directory of Black-owned businesses, officialblackwallstreet.com is a great directory. There's also an app and there was another app that I found but I haven't tried it. It's called Bob Spotter, B-O-B Spotter. So check those out, do a little bit of research, support Black-owned businesses, support local businesses in your neighborhood, and as always, you can find us on the web at cgmphilly.com. You can email us at info at cgmphilly, and thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.